I know I've shared this before in the past at some point, but when I was in Bible college, uh, part of the responsibility of students was uh, to find a ministry and serve in it. And I, I, I served in various ministries, but one that I, that I stuck with for a longer period was a prison ministry. And uh, I wanted to stretch myself. I wanted to have a new experience and, and uh, minister God's word in a situation that was very much different than the local church. So it was quite an experience, an hour and a half drive every Sunday morning, uh, early morning, and then going to the prison and going through the, the, the security, which took some time, and then to an area where the service uh, would meet. And this was a maximum security prison. So um, I had never experienced anything quite like that. Your, your head's kind of on a swivel at all times, you know, just being aware of, of where you're at. And I heard from men there and then even after the, the fact of discussing life in prison for those. And, and something they said just kind of shocked me when I was in college. They, they say the indicator of freedom in a society is, is having responsibilities, and the indicator of prison is the loss of responsibilities. And you can see that pretty clearly when you walk in and observe life for those that are in prison. Most inmates have lost the privilege of any responsibilities, really. Someone else almost does everything for them. They, they decide where they live. They decide where they sleep. They decide what they wear. They decide what they eat, what time they should get up, what time they go to bed. And, and the only responsibility, it seems, for those in prison is that they're responsible to obey what they're told to do. And, and many might believe that to have true freedom means you don't have any responsibilities, but that simply isn't true. The privilege of freedom brings the privilege of responsibility. Now, why do I say this? Well, we come back to God's word in the book of Amos, where we left off last week. And Amos is a prophet of the Lord coming to, to the nations and then primarily to God's people, to Israel. And he, and he goes into great detail of listing all of the horrific sins the nations had done and then leads into God's people. And the hammer falls. See, God's people had the privilege of responsibility to obey God's word, and they fail miserably. And so Amos seems, as, as I kind of looked at this, uh, this week in these chapters we're going to look at, it presents a, a court case, so to say, against Israel to show them their guilt and to convince them of the coming punishment for their willful disobedience. So Amos begins his arguments, and I believe we can learn something about this for ourselves if we listen. But his arguments here in this book are a little different than a normal courtroom scene that you would see on television now. This book is in the genre of poetry. Now, why would God communicate such a blistering punishment of his people in poetry? You know, isn't poetry the communication style of love and romance, right? Man, you're, you're paying attention to the calendar. You've got a little over a week before Valentine's Day, okay? You know, roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so is you, you know. I mean, that's what we think of poetry, this romantic thing. But, well, not quite, not always. And poetry, I believe, is the right style to communicate this book Because as we'll hear, Amos is going to prophesy of a love that was lost from God's vantage point. God's people had forsaken him. They had left their first love. And Amos communicates that that loss in poetic ways to show the significance of their rejection of him. 
Amos is broken up as a, as a whole into three main sections. The first, as we saw last week, is the message of judgment. The second main section is the reason for judgment. We'll look at that today and Lord willing in two weeks through chapter six. And then the last main section is the execution of judgment. And that's chapter seven through nine. And these three sections, the, the, the message of judgment, the reason for judgment, the execution of judgment shows us who God is and what God requires of his people. And so here's the main idea, real short and sweet. Hopefully you understand that. You see it even in the songs that we sung leading up to this. But the main idea is this. God's holiness requires punishment for sin. God's holiness requires punishment for sin. It's, it's short, it's simple, it's, it's necessary for us to understand even today in our own life. This book was, was written for Israel, God's people, but this book can give us great insight and application today as God's people. And so I pray that as we listen, we'll take to heart what God has for us through the prophet Amos. So here's the, the outline this morning. Three points as we walk through. First is the breach of contract in Amos chapter 3. Second is the failure to repent in Amos 4. And third is the indictment of an unjust people, Amos 5, 1 through 17. We won't finish all of Amos 5 this morning. So number one, the breach of contract, Amos 3. Look at verse 1, and I'm going to kind of walk through. I'm not going to read it all in one sitting. We're going to walk through these verses and, and cover from Amos 3 all the way through chapter 5, verse 17. Amos 3, verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that are brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Who is Amos talking to here? It's, it's God's people. It's Israel. He uses this phrase three times at the beginning of each of these chapters. Hear this word. That'll be the beginning three words of each chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1. And it's to address their audience, to get their attention again. He's speaking to them. And it's a reminder again given to God's people to show them of their exclusive relationship that they have between the Lord and them. Israel was the first nation to hear God's word and was the only nation to receive God's word directly from God's servants. And Israel was a privileged nation above all other nations because Israel could hear and understand who God is and how they should respond to him. And what they failed to understand was that election to privilege also brought with it election to responsibility, to hear God's word and to obey. God's covenant with his people was not fully unconditional, but it rested on their proper response to him. There would be blessings and cursings as stated clearly in Deuteronomy 28. God's people, if they ignored him, if they ignored his word, would have a consequence. And it seems as though as we come through Amos and, and many other of the, the minor prophets, Israel treated the exodus kind of like a, a lucky rabbit's foot that would bring them good, good favor in times of trouble, no matter what they did. And, and they, they viewed God and his salvation as, as a given. And they take his grace for granted. No matter what we do, no matter how wicked we live, God's just always going to bring us back. God's just always going to look over this. And the same temptation can be for us as Christians. We read it this week, if you're reading through the Bible with us, in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So the temptation's still there to kind of just take it for granted. 
and live however we want. God's people begin to, to think and act that God's love and protection would always be there. But the Lord says, he, he wants to point them out again of this special relationship. He says there in verse 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. And, and Amos' message was sure startling to God's people. See, rather than saying what the people wanted or expected to hear, Amos told them the truth of what they needed to hear. What privilege comes with responsibility. God's people were there to showcase the grace and mercy of their God and not take advantage of people, to not use other people for selfish gain. And Israel disregarded this. They threw aside the responsibility to obey God, and God will now hold them accountable for their irresponsibility. See, God's word was there to instruct God's people and how they're to relate to him and how they're to relate to others. In fact, if you look at the Ten Commandments, the majority about, uh, about uh, those given to God's people were how they were to relate to other people. The first three address Israel's relationship to God. The fourth serves as a, a transitional commandment. The next six, though, address Israel's behavior towards one another. See, God cares very deeply about how his people will respond and interact with one another. God is very much interested in how we treat people. A loving God is is, is as faithful to to discipline his children for their disobedience as he is to bless them. And, And what we learn through the book of Amos is that the price of sin is high. There'll be consequence. So, in in the Lord's courtroom, he begins his line of questioning. Look at verse 3. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall into a snare in the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in the city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? And Amos here is establishing the principle that every event has a cause. And he uses these six pictures to show his people that every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. When does a lion roar? When it's hiding and attempting to catch its prey? No, no, absolutely not. It, it would, if it did that, it would scare away the prey. No, a lion roars when it's going after its prey. When it sees it in sight. And, and what, what did we learn last week? The lion is roaring. Right? He's roaring against his people's wickedness and sin. And he's trying to wake up his people for the coming punishment. And these statements contain some dreadful warnings if they could grasp it. Disaster was coming on Israel because of the rebellion and sin, and it was the Lord's doing. It was him that was acting. He wanted them to understand that he would, he would communicate it now through his servants, the prophets. He wanted them to hear from him, and he would use his prophets. And what we learn from that is God does not leave his people in the dark concerning his purposes for their life. No, he uses others to speak to his people. 
He used the prophets. What we see over and again in the the scriptures, the Lord never brings down punishment on his people without first sending them a word of warning. And why? Why does the Lord do this time and again? Friends, because judgment and punishment is not God's default setting when it comes to dealing with humanity. I think some believe that. That God is just a God of judgment all the time. But God's normal position with us as humans is not punishment always. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should re- reach repentance. God's posture towards humanity is not always in judgment and he goes so far to warn them before punishment comes. See, God's default position is mercy. The sometimes harsh words of Amos is God's tough love for his people. See, Israel at this point is so steeped in sin that it required a hard message. And Amos preaches here in poetry to show the love God still has for his people and beckons them to come home. But as we see, they refuse. And Amos now, the, the prosecutor, calls witnesses to the stand. And, and these witnesses will shock Israel. Amos will call the Philistines and the Egyptians. Look at verse 9. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod, to the strongholds in the land of Egypt, and say, assemble yourselves in the mountain of Samaria, and see the great tumults within her, and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. He calls them to these these countries to witness how Israel's rebellion against the Lord has brought about confusion and unrest in their midst. The word tumult in verse 9 conveys the idea of creating a great disturbance. The nation is so entrenched in sin that Israel is incapable of doing right. It's, It's pure chaos. And, and, and the people lack integrity and they're hoarding and they're stealing and they're violent towards one, one another. And he's, he's saying even, even the pagan nations of, of Philistines and Egyptians see how deserving they are of God's punishment. And, and what will be the punishment? Look at verse 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd rescues from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with a corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house and the houses of Irie, Ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. What we learn from this, and I know it's kind of hard even to understand and decipher through this, but the, the posture of Israel during this and what their punishment is, is announced is, is they're dwelling in, and they have winter homes and summer homes. This is the good time to be an Israelite, they think. Like, I got lots of money, I've got lots of stuff. I'm really comfortable. You know, it says there in, uh, what's, let's see, uh, 
Verse 12, the end of verse 12, with the corner of a couch and part of a dead, they're, they're sitting back, they're lounging back as this announcement comes. See, for them, it, it, life is good. Life is really good. Reclining in their couches, totally unaware that, that the judgment is coming. And, and what we learn, what we see in this time is God's people were experiencing great financial freedom and bounty. They're living the high life. They're so powerful and wealthy. Many of them own two homes, winter home, summer home. And God's judgment is that that's coming to an end. You won't enjoy those homes. What once was a sign of prosperity and financial security will come to be reminders of God's judgment on those who oppress the poor and the weak. Their punishment will be full, but as we learn also, there'll be a remnant. There's a small bit of people, Amos says in verse 12, that will make it out. They are trapped in their sin. And friend, I I wonder what sin are you trapped in today that God has been beckoning to you, calling you to repent, urging you to surrender, but you refuse. In fact, you can't see it because life is going so well. You know, 2 Peter 3, 9 that I read is still true. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's still true. But Peter continues the next verse. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He's patient towards us. But what Peter's telling us is God's patience will run out. God is not always going to be in the posture of forgiveness and mercy. One day when you least expect it, God will return and it will be too late. This covenant that God had with Israel, this contract between God and his people, had been breached. They have rejected him. This message should not have shocked them. It should not have surprised them. Because it was a rehashing of Deuteronomy 28. I spent some time this week just reading that chapter. God tells them explicitly in Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and cursings that would happen based upon this covenant. I encourage you today even to spend some time. It'll lighten, in in fact, what Amos says because you read Deuteronomy 28 and you thumb back and forth, you think, well, God is faithful to his word. We tend to like God's faithfulness when there are blessings there, right? We tend to, I I like this, God's faithful. God's faithful in all things. And as you read Deuteronomy 28, he was faithful and his judgment that he warned them about. And we see that listed out in chapter four. God would be faithful in his coming punishment. So Amos will detail all the ways that Israel has failed to repent. And so that's point number two, the failure to repent in Amos chapter four. First, Amos is gonna get particular here with a certain group of people. Look at verse one. 
Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are in the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through their breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast into outer harmon, declares the Lord. Amos begins the second pronouncement here in chapter 4, and it's toward women. And right off the bat, he has a name for them. And I want you to recognize, I want you to hear me very clearly. This is Amos. This is God's word. This is not Jeff's word. I don't want any angry emails this week. Amos says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. He's talking about women. He calls women cows. Now, this is long before the offensive term for women, and there's the the meaning behind this, okay? So just hear me out. Don't shut me down. Don't leave, okay? The region was called Bashan during the time of Amos. It was located in the east in the Sea of Galilee. And and given given the the agrarian culture of Israel, he's comparing the women to the best qualities of livestock and produce and expressions this now in the cows of Bashan. And should be understood of that of luxury and privileged circumstance. It's not about weight, and woman's appearance. The women are living luxurious lifestyles like a plump cow. And so, strike, don't write in your Bible this, but if, to think about this, a better term for today, please don't write this, write it in your notes. Better term for today, the real housewives of Samaria. Okay? I've never seen the show, but I know what it's about. Well, I think I have know it. That's what he's talking about here, though. So if we were to culturally adapt this, he says, hear this word, the real housewives of Samaria, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. And what he's saying here is the women of Amos' time are self-centered. Their main concern in life is self-indulgence, no matter who it hurts in the process. They are entitled. So if others, others have to suffer so that they can enjoy a better life, so be it. And it's a picture of extortion, the manipulation of the poor and needy. All of it's done to bankroll their extravagant lifestyle. And, and furthermore, they demand their husbands to do whatever they say. And whatever endeavors necessary to inquire more wealth, to make them more comfortable, more luxury, go do it. And they will be judged. And the judgment is gruesome there in, in verse 2. Led away in hooks or fish hooks. I'm not sure exactly what that means. It's not good. And then he moves to the religious sins and and an offer to repentance that the Lord continually made. Look at verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4. Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for you so love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. I give you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. 
I also withheld the rain from you when there was yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send rain on another city. One field would have rain and a, and a field in which it did not rain would wither. And so two or three cities would, would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. And I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were a, a brand, as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. See, he, here, Amos is recalling all of the consequences that would happen in Deuteronomy 28. And it happened to them. This is all past. This has all already happened. See, the, God coming to his people after three and four, this is a this is long time of them disregarding God, closing their ears and their eyes of what's happening around them. See, the Israelites, the, the act of worship that he says there at the beginning of that passage was about drawing attention and glory to themselves, not to God. He's mocking their worship. They, they most definitely gave and they offered money, but it wasn't from a heart of love and adoration to God. No, it was, it was all show. And God continued to give them opportunity to repent. In fact, Amos lists seven ways here in which God was calling them to repent. Let's go through those quickly. First, in verse 6, God gave the people cleanness of teeth. And, and that's a vivid way of describing a famine. Your teeth are clean because you weren't able to eat. And yet you didn't turn back and come to me. Second, in verse 7, God deprived them of water in the time that they needed it most. But God was also clever in how he did this. He would send to one city and not the next. To one field and not the next. That would just look weird to people, right? Can you imagine it raining on your neighbor's yard and not yours? And then the other neighbor? Something to think, what's going on here? It would seem strange. And yet it didn't cause them to consider God. And third, in verse 9, the Lord struck them with diseased crops that, that had survived the drought. Fourth, in verse 9, he sent locusts in the vineyards and groves. Didn't turn back. The fifth one, in verse 10, the Lord struck the people of Israel with a plague. Surely this would wake up people. A plague, right? Surely they would pay attention. Nope. Sixth, in the last half of verse 10, the Lord used their enemies to punish them. Many young men would die and the stench of death would linger in the camp. Surely they would ask, what's going on, Lord? And they didn't turn back. Seventh, he overthrows them like when he overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah with fire. They should know enough about fire and judgment to say something's not right with us and it still didn't cause them to look to him. And Israel suffered all these calamities, all of which are detailed in Deuteronomy 28, but the people were either too hard-hearted or so, so self-deceived by their false sense of righteousness they refused to turn back to the Lord. And really, what I believe is that they didn't turn back to the Lord is because they didn't understand that they had left the Lord in the first place. They had fooled themselves. They, had, they were lulled to sleep 
with how good life is. I mean, life's good. It's hard to think that you're not following the Lord when you've got a summer house and a winter house, right? I mean, look at, look at my driveway. Look at the cars that I have. Look how blessed I am. And the Lord would send these, these extravagant circumstances. But it didn't matter because they were, they were really wowed by their power and position and their security and their bank account. They, they had money. And, and they believed that God would, would accept them no matter what. That God was always on their side. They could live however they wanted to live. See, trials were meant to turn the faces of rebellious people towards God. And in their stupidity and selfishness, they refused to pay attention and to learn. They refused to consider the Lord. And in his mercy, and in God's mercy, he continued to send trials to turn their hearts and their minds to him. See, they were feeling secure in themselves and their work and their stuff and not in the Lord. And the Lord continues to strip it away. And I just wonder if we are no different than Israel. And it's hard to see it sometimes, especially in America. We're living so well, so comfortably. How would you know if you've walked away from the Lord? I wonder what trials the Lord has brought into your life to wake you up. Not just allowed, but brought. You know, trials are there to turn our hearts to him. So Amos is preaching to them because what they loved was far different than what the Lord loved. Just remember, friends, the evaluations of Wall Street and the evaluations of heaven are not always the same. Because what they cared for a great deal, God cared nothing for. And God would show them. And God would punish them because of their self-centeredness and the refusal to come to the Lord, there would be no more warning, no more war opportunities for reconciliation. Their time was done. He says in verse 12, chapter four, therefore thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads in the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. They have relied on themselves and their own religious piety. They have demonstrated their self-confidence by living without the Lord. Now the Lord says that they can continue to rely on themselves as they will prepare to meet him. Their unwillingness to come to God in repentance will result in him coming to them in judgment. Friends, you need to realize that 
this God that we read about in Amos has not changed. He is the creator who has revealed himself through his word and he calls all men and women to humble themselves in repentance and faith. He is the one true judge of the earth. He is the judge of every one of us that have gathered here this morning. If you are here and you are non-Christian, please recognize the futility of making anything your final security other than God himself. God is your creator. He made you in his image that you might know him. And one day he will call you to give an account of your life. There is nothing else in this world that is so certain. It is not matter how strong or prosperous or successful or how secure you feel in this life. God made you and God will call you to give an account of your life. He should be your only security. Friends, God has not changed since the time of Amos. And if you've come in this morning and you believe that we worship a God that is different, who relates to us differently and to his people, you are sadly mistaken. God has not changed. He cannot change. He's immutable. He has never changed and he will never change. Some believe that when they get to that final day and they stand before God, that he will somehow, some way, have a change of heart. But friends, he will not violate his word. He will not violate his nature. God will be who he says he is. There are some, even maybe seated this morning here, who are harboring this foolish hope that when they meet God that final day, that he will just go easy on them. They believe that this God will just somehow be struck at how they live their life. That they, they really did do good things for people. That they really did care for others. And they believe that this God will somehow just pass over their sin. Oh, it's okay. No, no, no issues. You're good. Just come on in. It's all right. I'll just let it go. Just come on in. You know, somehow God is just, he's going to be really good that day. He's just going to be really forgiving. He's just going to, it's okay. And unfortunately, there are many that are convinced right now that they're just fine. That's not the God that we read of the Bible. That's not the God of Genesis who kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. That's not the God who destroyed the world through a flood. It's not the God that we read of in Amos who brought punishment and judgment to his people. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're hoping for God to be something other than God on that day, you're hoping for something that's impossible. This passage shows us clearly that there is a point of no return. You are not given a limitless amount of time to repent. You have today, 
you have right now, you are not promised anymore. And so this message should be responded to now. This is not something in life that you just put off till later. This is why we, we endeavor, we work to share the gospel here every week. This is why we make it a part of the membership process when you apply to be members to talk through the gospel with us because we want you to understand it and we want you to share it. You know, Charles Spurgeon encapsulates this urgency. He says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. And may it be never said of any person who visits Edgewood Bible Church that they were not warned of the wrath to come for sin. May it be said that people we come in contact in our own life have not been warned by us out of love of the wrath that is to come. Friend, if you're here and you've never trusted in Christ, I implore you to turn to him in faith and repentance. I would love to talk to you today. I know there's many others, even seated with you, I would love to sit down and talk with you about this. For Israel, as we read, time has run out. We saw the breach of contract in Amos 3, the failure to repent in Amos 4, and now last, the indictment of an unjust people, Amos 5, 1 through 17. Chapter 5 here is an interesting chapter. Something significant is happening in, in this Hebrew literature. And what we have here in verses 1 through 17 is a chiasm. So you should have received a sheet of paper when you came in. Looks like this. You're probably wondering when that was going to get there, huh? It looks kind of like an outline. I just wanted you to have this as as a reference point in the Bible. A chiasm is intentionally employed by both the writer and speaker to, to, to help us and to understand, to emphasize, and reiterate key ideas. But it's also kind of a, a lyrical pattern made for easy uh, for people to consume and understand and absorb and even memorize. And so if you're new here this morning, this is not normal. We'll probably not do it again. Okay, so we, we, I wanted you to see this, though. I wanted you to have this, to see what I mean there. Chiasm, from the Greek word chi, kind of an X, and you can see in that paper this, this coming in and coming out, okay? And each one of these points to the middle here, this chiasm to the middle there. You see D in the middle, a hymn to Yahweh. So it begins with this lament in verses 1 through 3, then call to seek God and live in verses 4 through 6, then the accusation of no justice, verse 7, and then at the center is the main idea of the section here, this, this hymn to Yahweh. And then it goes back out with the accusation of no justice, kind of a repeat there a second time, the call to seek God and live a second time, and then a last lament over death of a nation. So we're going to kind of follow this outline as we go through the rest of chapter 5. So You can reference that as we're going through this. The first one is a lament of a death of a nation. Some scholars believe that Amos begins this last pronouncement here at one of the religious feasts, one of the most uh, important feasts in a sacred meeting place. 
So this is significant. I, I tend to believe that this is what's happening. It's surprising because Israel is meeting to celebrate their, their blessed lives. And they're going to reference God in some ways, but look how good we have it, okay? And, and really, it's a, it's a party. And Amos comes, and Amos sings this and, and speaks this lament over Israel's death. So it's kind of like you're at a party for someone, and, and someone comes in, and they begin this dirge, this lament. And it's, it's kind of depressing in some ways. And they're this song of mourning of the death of an individual. And as he goes on, you realize he's singing about me. Imagine the nerve of a person who pronounces you dead when you're still quite alive. It's kind of like the Christmas Carol movie, right? You know, this idea of, 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 of Scrooge being taken to all these kind of things, like this is what's going to happen to you, kind of. This is what's going to happen. Except in Christmas Carol, he has a chance to, to change, right? There's some hope. It's not here. It's done. And so he says this same phrase again, chapter 5, verse 1, Hear this word that I take up, over you and lamentation, O house of Israel, fallen no more to rise, says the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out, a thousand shall, be, shall have a hundred left. And that which went out, a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. This is a lament. This isn't God gloating. He isn't happy about this. He's mourning of the loss that they would experience. This is the message of the sovereign Lord that the towns and villages were reduced to insignificant numbers by a tenth of their size. And then he calls again, again, the graciousness here. Verse four, for thus that the Lord to the house of Israel seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel and, and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba for Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it with none to quench it for Bethel. See, what they, they had substituted religion and religious practices for authentic devotion to God. These people were, were going regularly to sacred sites in Bethel and, and Gilgal to perform the religious acts, but it was all for show. It was all just to check off the box. They had no relationship with God. They're just going to get it over with. They're like Christians who regularly go to, to church who call themselves Christians and give and serve, and yet they have no relationship with God. They have no care for that. They're, they're going to fool people, fooling pastors and elders, becoming a member even, saying all the right things, doing all the right things in the eyes of everyone else, but they don't care. They don't care about God. They don't care about their relationship with him. It's all for show. They, they've always been a Christian, so they're always going to act like a Christian. This was Israel. The people were trusting in the benefits these sacred places represented rather than the Lord who had made the promises to them. And the worship in Israel was consumerism. They went to church to get what they wanted. It was about them. It wasn't about seeking the Lord. No, they sought themselves. And yet, even at these late stages, the Lord extends a message of, of, of glimmer of hope here for the people you see that repetition there, seek me and live. It's another chiasm there. It's in the bottom of your sheet. Another one that you see there. And what grace and heartfelt longing. 
Perhaps their children would learn this. Perhaps future generations. So even in, even in judgment, God's still giving grace. And then we move to the next one, the accusation of no justice. Look at verse 7. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. They practiced injustice and profited from others. They were, they were seeking to abuse people. Over and over, the wealthy took advantage of the needy and the poor, and the needy had no recourse. They had no one to defend them. And the sweetness of justice had been turned into wormwood. Wormwood is a, a plant with a bitter taste. God's people had not only forgotten how they should treat the poor, they were directly against the poor so that they could make money. They could build a more comfortable lifestyle. And at the center here, this is the next one, the hymn to Yahweh. Verse 8, He who made Pilates, Pilates, and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. These verses exalt the Lord as the maker of the heavenly constellations, the one who controls the waters of the sea and brings destruction upon the land. He is the one who controls the pattern of time and set that up. And the phrase, the Lord is his name, is the climax to, of, this, of this hymn, of the point And he wants them to see and understand the Lord is the one with whom the Israelites must reckon with now. Amos is reminding them that, yes, I am speaking to you. It's the Lord, though, who's saying this to you. He's the one that you need to listen to. This is his message. He is the one that you will answer. And then he comes back out again of another accusation of no justice. Verse 10. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, who turn aside the needy in the gate, Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. The only way that Israel was able to build and have such profitable lives in large homes was because they abused the poor. They didn't pay them a livable wage. They didn't protect them. And he says they won't enjoy their homes. You build and build and build for this comfort and you won't get it. You plant that vineyard thinking you're going to enjoy that wine, you won't even taste it. They would be exiled. And he says, for I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. Friends, nothing is hidden to God. All was open to him. The psalmist says that even darkness has no effect on God. Psalm 139, 12, even the darkness is not dark to you. We cannot hide from God. Have you forgotten that this week? Perhaps do you treat any of your sins as if God is maybe comfortable with them? 
do you live in a way in which you believe God's just going to overlook some of your sins? Is there injustice in your own life, in the way you treat others? And you think God is just going to be okay with that? Do you act as if all you do is really unseen? The darkness can hide you from God's all-seeing eyes. That's not what the scripture says, friends. And then we see again a second call. There's B prime. You see that there in the bottom? A second call to seek God and live. Verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. And as you've said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. When the Lord exhorts Israel to seek good and to love good and to hate evil, what, 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 what is good here? What does that mean? I think the prophet Micah shows us even more details in his prophecy. A verse that is well known, Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. To do justice means to walk with God so much that his standard of right and wrong becomes your standard of right and wrong. And to love kindness means that as God's followers, as people who have received his kindness and his mercy, we're to exhibit that same kindness and that same mercy to those that we live around to be kind to others. Are you a kind person? You know, that's a question that's hard to answer for ourselves. So ask someone that really knows you. Some of you don't want to do that right now. Some of you need to. Am I a kind person? Do you see me as a kind person? And then listen. Don't put the shields up to defend, but listen. We've been shown so much kindness and mercy from our God. Can we show that to others? That's what a a Christian should look like. And then we should note there, and even in Micah's passage, you should note that God's people are to act justly themselves and to walk humbly with their God. means his followers are to live lives marked with unwavering loyalty to him and and not pride, but focused on, on loving and pleasing God alone. See, the righteous, as we, we read in Amos' book and in Micah's, the righteous must also always be prepared to stand up for what is true. And what should our attitude be towards evil? What does Amos say here? We must hate evil. And we must love good. And when we love what is good and hate what is evil, we will seek justice and seek to establish justice. Justice. See, as Christians, we should love justice and seek to work towards that in our world. God's people were called to establish justice. And there's even a glimmer of hope there. Do you see it in there? It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Even in, even in pronouncement of judgment, God is still gracious even though they're going to be led into exile, even though there be a 10% of them left, perhaps God would be gracious to that remnant. See, his posture is mercy. And then last is the second lament of a death of nation. Verse 16, Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, and all the squares, they'll be wailing 
and all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation, and the vineyards they shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, said the Lord. God laments their rejection of him, the refusal to, to obey. And the cries and wails will be heard by all that are within earshot. God's people rejected God and he'll be faithful to his word with consequences. See, what we learn again through this, with great privilege comes great responsibility. God's people would need to learn this hard lesson. They would need to learn of who this God is and the proper response to his word. Well, we leave this section now of Amos. We'll come back in in two weeks and we'll see the rest of the section into chapter six, but it has kind of an abrupt end. Sin brings those endings into our lives. And God laments this, God, but God will have an answer to sin. God does have an answer to sin. God's punishment through Amos for God's people was certain. It would come to happen. God would be faithful to his word. And Amos' words to Israel is repeated to us this morning. Prepare to meet your God. Friend, are you ready to meet God? Are you ready to stand before God? Will you be able to stand before God? See, God's judgment is certain for us. And so how do we escape God's judgment? It's only through Jesus Christ. After all, isn't God also merciful? God's justice and mercy have been reconciled in one place, in only one place, and that was the cross of Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, a holy God came and took on flesh, and he lived a perfect life in order to offer himself as a sinless sacrifice. See, on the cross of his crucifixion, he took on himself the punishment of God for the sins of all who would turn and trust in him. And then God rose, uh, Jesus rose from the dead in victory over death. And that's what we remember when we celebrate together the Lord's Supper. That's what we are to call to our minds.